FM with Green Fern. Fuel your day with Green Fern's new high-protein cooked chicken breast fillets. 100% natural and packed with flavour. Thanks to Jenny Green for getting us to the end of the week. It's Friday the 10th of December and this is Game On. Coming up today, Stephen Gerrard makes his return to Anfield, but will he get one over on Jurgen Klopp? Alan Cawley and Fergal Brennan will share their views. The Champions Cup has been hampered by COVID, but the show will go on. Stephen Ferris gives his predictions. Katie Taylor is in action in Liverpool this weekend. Gavin Casey is there. Plus, we'll preview the European cross Crunchy Championships with Ian O'Reardon. If you want to get in touch, please do so. Text us on 51552 or tweet at GameOn2FM. GameOn on 2FM. Now, welcome along. We are going to get straight into the football. Alan Cawley is with us, as is journalist Fergal Brennan. Alan, to you, it feels like it's a really big weekend for Liverpool and for Stephen Gerrard because he'll be making his return. And no surprise, really, to hear Jurgen Klopp asked about it. He said it's only a matter of time before he ends up managing Liverpool. But he did send a little bit a word of caution, saying that we have to look at what happened with Frank Lampard and Chelsea and making sure that it is the right time for Stephen Gerrard to do so but all the same it's a big test for him Alan Yeah absolutely Marie it does feel like a big weekend and of course for Stephen Gerrard the fact that he's come back to Anfield as a manager of an opposing team because we all know the unbelievable career that he had I suppose not the fact that he was a Liverpool legend but a Premier League legend as well and he is one of those iconic figures in the game Um, but I think in terms of his managerial career from what I've seen of it so far and from listening to him in interviews he certainly wants to separate the two and we all know in terms of the fact just because you were an unbelievable footballer doesn't mean you have a divine right to go on and be a brilliant manager as well and that certainly has been the case with a lot of great players but I think from listening to Gerrard he's certainly gone off and he's gone about it the right way something that you would nearly kind of I would associate something similar to what maybe Ron O'Gara has done in his career that he's gone done his homework done things properly started off maybe learning the game first of all he was at Liverpool's academy then when he felt right in terms of the job at Rangers he felt that was the right step to take to to obviously bring on his development as a manager which he was very successful at with Rangers and obviously toppling Celtic as well that the opportunity has now come with Aston Villa who are a huge club as well and not many people I think give Villa the credit for just how big a club that they are certainly in England everybody knows that but over here I'm not so sure if people realise just how big they are they are a massive club so he feels that's the right progression for him right now and from certainly listening to him he did a brilliant interview with Jamie Carragher last week um, and from, just from listening to him Marie, I get the sense that he has his head very much well screwed on people only know him as the player and the brilliant player that he was and that barnstorming all action type player but I think he's a very clever fella as well, speaks very well, comes across very well in media interviews. He certainly knows where he wants to go in terms of the direction uh, of his managerial career, which everybody feels as though will culminate, as you say, as manager at Liverpool one day. But I think he's going to do his homework first and foremost, do things right, do things properly and take that job on its merit when he takes it, not just taking it because he's Steven Gerrard, uh, the fantastic footballer. Yeah, and I think probably going to Scotland and, and being in Rangers and almost being shielded really from that glare of the media. Obviously up there it would have been intense, but you know, a lot of the lessons that he learned wouldn't have been highlighted as much if he had made mistakes in the Premier League. We'd know about them an awful lot more while up there at least you could kind of get on with things and learn a little bit under the radar but he will be far from under the radar when he goes to Anfield um, with his Aston Villa team it'll be interesting as well Fergal just to see how the Aston Villa players approach it under him and also how the Liverpool players approach it as well going up against him 
It will, I th- and I think the two the two managers involved, Klopp and Gerard, in, in terms of their press conferences in in the last few days, have both been quite complimentary about each other. Klopp has praised Gerard for the start that he's had at, at Villa, and obviously Gerard has has kind of rolled back and said that. <clears throat> Some of the advice that Klopp gave him during their their brief crossover at Anfield was was invaluable to him at Rangers, and now he's trying to implement that at Aston Villa. I think Liverpool, in terms of where they are as a team and as a club at the moment, they're in a much stronger position, obviously. I think there's an enormous amount of respect from the players towards Steven Gerrard, but you're talking about players like Mo Salah, who's who's established himself as a world-class player in his own right. He's not going to be overawed by Steven Gerrard. He's got a fantastic legacy at Liverpool deservedly so the fans absolutely love him but Liverpool have so many players in their current team that they're not going to be overawed by Steven Gerrard and particularly the form they're in at the minute and how much they're looking to drive and push on in the Premier League and in the Champions League but I think one of the interesting aspects of, of Gerrard's approach at Aston Villa will be how much he drags up the average level of their team. Jack Grealish was the star man with Aston Villa. He's obviously moved on and gone to Manchester City. There's a, probably a sprinkling of five or six players in that Villa team that with the right motivation, with the right inspiration that you'd imagine Gerard will will implement alongside this idea of a, a probably better coaching attributes than, than he's given credit for, as, as Alan mentioned. He'll drag them up, looking at Tyrone Mings, Ollie Watkins, John McGinn, good players, but with someone like Gerard kind of getting stuck into them and looking to motivate them, they can probably drive themselves up a little bit and become Europa League level players. The onus will then be on Gerard and Aston Villa to act like a Europa League club and get themselves into that reckoning in terms of where they finish in the Premier League. So it's been a really good start for him. Three wins from four in the Premier League. Obviously, defeat to Manchester City. I'd still massively fancy Liverpool tomorrow to beat them. But he's he is quite humble in terms of these situations. He knows that Klopp and Guardiola are at the top of their game and he has a lot to learn from the two of them. And I think that's been something else that's quite refreshing from his perspective. So many former Premier League players have come back into management and maybe there has been a little bit of arrogance or a little bit of expectation that they were going to just translate their playing career into their managerial career. That doesn't seem to be the case with Gerrard. As as Alan rightly says, he seems to have done his homework. There's a humility about the different skill set that it takes to be an elite level manager. There's a hell of a long long road ahead for him in terms of Villa and potentially Liverpool in the future. But the early, early signs do look really, really positive. Yeah, you almost forget really how how young he is and how much or how quick he went kind of into that level at um, Rangers and how long he he spent there as well, you know. So he's uh, he definitely has a really long career ahead of him. Alan, it's also going to be an opportunity for Liverpool as well to to lay down a little bit of a marker after that wobble that Chelsea had against West Ham because we're heading into such a busy period of football and we all know how much that Christmas period can um, affect the outcome at the end of the season. So there will be an opportunity for Liverpool to probably get another big win if they could at all. Yeah, and they all feel like big wins at the moment, Marie, because as we mentioned last week, even on the show, uh, with these three teams, three brilliant teams that we have in this title race, there is going to be two and thrown, and you're going to have teams go through little dips and little spells. And obviously, that was Chelsea last week. So, as you say, Liverpool feel the opportunity, maybe lay down that marker. That late goal feels massive with Origi, obviously, mm-hmm. last week in the 94th minute. And they're the type of moments that you look back come the end of the season. If you were to win the league by a point, two points, you will look at the likes of those victories, which at the time you're kind of thinking, okay, it's Wolves or it's Burnley or it's Newcastle teams that we should be beating. <clears> one big, when you get a big goal like that, um, in injury time when you maybe feel like it's not going to be your day they're the ones that prove pivotal really come the end of the season so huge game for Liverpool they'll be going into it with huge confidence 
you know my feelings on Klopp he's doing an unbelievable job there Marie and you look at him during the week even making eight changes and bringing lads I love the fact that he's giving young lads opportunities he also making the squad they all feel part of it feel integrated uh, you look at them when they, they obviously the goals during the week and they're all jumping off the bench and last week the lake goal they're all jumping up and down I love to see that the unity among staff and squad and all um, so he's doing an unbelievable job you would fancy them tomorrow but I think Villa will give them plenty of problems as well three wins out of four I watched him last week against Leicester Villa uh, Gerard he's quite brave in how he plays as well with the two fullbacks Matty Cash it was Ashley Young last week and even though they were getting exposed defensively he still had them pushing on uh, in the second half offensively going for the win so I, I don't think that'll hold too much fear for him tomorrow he'll know all about the qualities of Liverpool absolutely if anybody knows about it it's him but I think he'll be brave in his approach as well Marie, because I think that's the type of manager he is and it should make for a great game but I would fancy Liverpool to edge it Yeah and I'm looking forward to just even keeping an eye on the sideline because Klopp doesn't care you know if something annoys him he'll get stuck into the opposing mm. manager uh, so it'll be interesting as well to see just how they, they're behaving on the sidelines so this the same time that's on at three o'clock and at the same time Fergal then Chelsea are playing Leeds United and just from Chelsea's point of view look it was a bit of a wobble against West Ham but at the same time it, it does feel like they're not maybe as um, composed as they have been in the past yeah I think it's, it's composure and it's consistency I know Alan's mentioned about Chelsea before that they were his his tip to, to power on and, and win the league and I still think <clears throat> they'll be right in the conversation but I just think the difference we've seen in the last couple of weeks is that Chelsea's trump card is that ability to just shut teams out and not concede too many goals be really really tight defensively and eventually squeeze out a goal and win by one or two goals whereas Liverpool or Manchester City can just blow teams to pieces and that's been the case in the last few weeks Chelsea have found themselves West Ham obviously being the perfect example last week where they were in front should have gone on and won it and were hoping that just a kind of rear guard action would see them over the line and it didn't whereas uh, Liverpool and City have just got that ability if they're one or two nil up to just go and win three four five depends on the opposition obviously but Chelsea don't really seem to have that and I think we'll start to see that becoming a bit more of a pattern in the next few weeks I also think the psychological edge Chelsea have been top for five or six weeks now Liverpool and City have gone above them um, and Thomas Tuchel's not happy uh, his press conferences the last few weeks he's been quite negative about uh, some of the performances not necessarily calling out individual players but just this idea that they're either not doing enough to win games or not doing enough get, not doing enough in games to not drop points and the game away at Zenit in midweek was a perfect example of that a dead rubber against a team who've been pretty poor in the Champions League this season and they still couldn't win I know he made a few changes and you know it's a long trip and etc but still these are the types of things if, if he wants to ignite them and get them back into the conversation with Liverpool and City they need to do that and Marie as you mentioned there's a huge amount of games between now and Christmas and now and the end of the year it's not really getting any easier they might not have any of the big boys to play but there's a, there's a few difficult uh, games in there, particularly away from home. They've got Wolves and they've got Villa then on the 26th. And, and that will be difficult, particularly if they're short on confidence. And if they are short on confidence, Klopp and Guardiola, Liverpool and City are just ruthless. And they will look to open up a bit of a gap on them. Yeah, they'll just be waiting to, to see that little bit of vulnerability. Are we seeing some frailties there, Alan, do you think? Or is it just a little blip? I think it's just a little blip. Marie, of course, there's frailties and it was a bad week for them. Uh, I think it started with that Watford game because they were poor in that but they got out of jail and two shall mention that but then the defeat to West Ham and obviously as Fergal says the European game during the week where they shipped three goals that's six goals in two games when you think of how good they were defensively in the early part of the season right up until the end of November it's 
obviously the last two or three games where they've shipped as many goals as they had all season up to now so that would be a worry for him but I think if you look at that midfield area at the moment they're just not getting the balance right when you think of Kante and Kovacic and the protection they give back three um, at the moment it's, he's, playing, he's having to play lost his cheek and Ross Barkley we do think they were players that were probably cast aside at Chelsea everybody thinking their future was elsewhere to be fair usually he's given them a chance and brought them back in but there's not a defensive one in their body so he doesn't they're not offering any of that protection for the back four that Kante would obviously give even Kovacic Jorginho as well who there's a question mark about at the moment with his fitness so I think that's where they're just struggling a little bit and nobody should have sympathy for them either like I'm pointing out a couple of injuries everybody gets injuries for the likes of Chelsea and City so that's a problem that Sushil will have to deal with and he'll have to come up with that solution but I don't think anybody sympathy for them but in terms of their form going forward and, and maybe if you're questioning whether to be still in the title race despite this little blip I think that's all it is and as I say it might be Chelsea this month you could come to January and it could be Liverpool it could be Manchester I think we're going to see a bit of two and fro with these teams but come the end of the season I still think we're in for the best title race that we've seen in years I hope so anyway but the next few weeks will definitely tell a lot Alan mentioned injuries there Fergal and we have had an update from Ralph Ranick on Paul Pogba so it looks like he's another four weeks away from a return to action at this stage uh, Ranick's term will be halfway through by the time nearly Paul Pogba comes back which might not be a bad thing really yeah, I mean, Paul Pogba is, is the type of player that he's going to continue to probably split the United fan base right down the middle in terms of his his long-term future at the club. Obviously, his contract situation um, being up next summer is a million miles away from being resolved. Anthony Martial's agent came out this morning and said that he wants to move on potentially in January and if not at the end of the season. Um, so much of this depends on what United's plan is for the end of the season do they have somebody already lined up to take over from Rangnick would they be open to the idea of him staying on and doing another season as manager before moving into his into his consultancy role um, and I think in terms of Paul Pogba it's just been too much of flashes of what he can do when it clicks when it works he's phenomenal he's one of the best midfielders in world football he, he genuinely is but so many variables need to be in place for him to perform at that level and you look at other elite midfielders not just in the Premier League but right the way across Europe they don't need as much to be in their direction for them to to perform and I think probably from a United fans perspective they are edging more towards this idea of not get rid of him we don't want him to play for the club anymore but it does seem to be as if he's edging towards a fairly quiet fairly low-key exit if a pre-contract gets agreed in January and he's still not fit could be February by the time he gets back fully fit and you'd imagine he'll just kind of squeeze out the last few months of his of his time at Manchester United which will be sad because there was so much promise when he came back but ultimately uh, neither he nor the club really seem to have been able to put the pieces of the jigsaw together on a on a consistent basis. Alan, it's pretty early days really in Ranić's tenure, but have you learned much? Have you um, an understanding of what he's trying to do? Yeah, because I think he's quite clear in the next January. We, we already we, like, we heard so much before he took over, but even in his press conferences, um, I think he's a really good uh, communicator. He speaks so well. His messaging, as I say, is very, very clear. So no doubt that the players will be in, won't be in any confusion whatsoever, whereas we always felt the one... I suppose criticism, well, a lot of criticisms that were labelled at Solskjaer was the fact that they had no identity in the players. Everything seemed to me it was off the cuff and they didn't know whether they were coming or going. I don't think the players will be, there'll be no confusion whatsoever about what this fellow wants. And we've already seen last weekend in terms of 
the, the Ronaldo thing and you look at these modern day coaches it's solutions that they have to come up with Marie rather than looking at excuses and I think he's already looking at the problem area that people were saying well Ronaldo does impress he's already come up with a solution where he's looking to get a formation that we can get Ronaldo into the team still have his um, all his attributes in terms of the threat that he poses as a goal scorer which is phenomenal as we know but also maybe filter people around him that we can still do the pressing and play the game that he wants to play obviously last week he put Rashford up alongside him and he was playing um, Fernandez and Sancho Narrow so I think he's really 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 impressive so far in what I've seen but it's only been a couple of weeks Marie, and we've and, and he's come in with such I suppose there's been so much talk and so much hype around him I'd say he's probably at the stage now where he just wants things to settle down and just let him get on with the job as well because even Fergal mentioned in terms of the end of the season and a plan in place I actually genuinely believe this fella fancies taking on the job full time and properly so if he gets a taste of it at all what we've seen from and things go well for him, I think he will we will be in charge for maybe a period going forward. And I don't think that would be a bad thing from what I've seen so far, me, because as I say, I really like what he's doing and what I've seen so far and just let him get on with it now because for too long, for, for so many years, Man United have just kind of dwindled along really with no plan, no direction. Nobody knew what, what they were at on and off the pitch. Whereas I think with this manager now in charge, the way he speaks, I think that'll be totally different. Yeah, and Fergal, he's getting a, a good run of fixtures just from a betting in point of view. So he's obviously got Norwich tomorrow at half five and then you're looking at Brentford coming up and, and Brighton. So he's kind of getting tests that will allow him to put his stamp on without have been under too much pressure, you would think, <coughs> at this stage anyway. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of these situations that can come back to, to bite you and be famous last words. I think it was Rio Ferdinand and Owen Hargreaves who were doing the, the punditry for the young boys game in midweek. And I think they, they lined up the next 10 games and Owen Hargreaves kind of let slip that he'd be pushing for 30 points or there or thereabouts. I think that's a bit ambitious. But no, you are right. You look at some of the names that they're going to be playing. Norwich away this weekend, Brentford away in midweek who have hit a bit of a sticky patch themselves. I think the big target for Rangnick, the type of character that he is and the type of approach that he has, is implementing some of these ideas that Alan mentioned of, yes, pressing is the big watchword that's kind of surrounding him, but pressing not for pressing's sake, for winning back possession and looking to really quickly turn that into goal-scoring chances. He gave a brilliant quote last week saying that I think it's the first eight seconds after winning back possession is the best and most productive time to score a goal. So that that gives a little window into what he wants to do. And and as for Ronaldo, the debate over the pressing and the non-pressing is going to continue to go on. Cristiano Ronaldo is not going to press for anybody. It could be Pep Guardiola, it could be Jurgen Klopp. He's just not going to do it. So the onus now on Rangnick is to build a situation and a framework around him, which they do have the players with pace and with energy, Rashford, Sancho, etc., to do that because he will still score those goals as long as they, they bounce his way. And, and you're looking at these games, Ronaldo will be licking his lips. He'll, he'll, he'll be expecting to get a good handful of goals in these games, maybe even pushing for double figures. And if he does, and United get the results and the points on the board that they would expect, um, I think they could be right in the top four reckoning. OK, well... You were the one who said famous last words. I'll be reminding you of that. <laughs> Fergal Brennan <laughs> and Alan Colley, thank you as always for joining us. We're going to take a very quick break and then it's Champions Cup. Game on on 2FM with Green Farm. Healthy dinners made easy with Green Farm's high protein cooked chicken breast fillets range. Available in selected stores nationwide. Two. 
Now it is time to turn our attention to rugby. There is a huge weekend of Champions Cup to come. So much to look forward to. But unfortunately, Stephen Ferris, who joins me on the line, a lot of it is going to be focused on COVID and nearly who can survive these outbreaks the best. Uh, Leinster are the first team in action against Bath. And a bit like everybody now, they have announced that they have been hit by three positive COVID cases. But when it comes to Leinster, they're a team that are always pretty strong. And it probably helps as well that they are coming up against Premier Premiership strugglers, Bath. Yeah, certainly does. Like Bath, um, rock bottom of the the Gallagher Premiership. Lost nine out of nine in the Premiership. Stuart Hooper, the coach there, is under huge, huge pressure. Um, I think they're probably maybe looking for a coach at the minute, uh, and hopefully somebody suitable will come along. But uh, he's staying resilient. But however, after this Leinster game, there's going to be more pressure. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. I know Leinster can rotate their squad regularly and. Uh, you know, Leo Collins going to be calling on uh, some players in this game. Kieran Brawley playing 12, Ross Byrne is a 10. A few question marks over this to Ross Byrne, uh, but he's given his chance. It's the same back row that demolished Connacht last week Josh van der Fleer, Doris, and uh, Reef Ruddock. So, you know, this is an answer team. The only, the only, um, not what it, not I would say negative, but if Bath can get stuck into the set piece, especially in the second row, there's no James Ryan there. Uh, Maloney starting in the second row with Ryan Baird. If they can upset the apple cart there a little bit, they might get some success. But for me, this Leinster side, after their buoyant win last week, should take this pass apart. Yeah, it does seem like it all, all right. And we know how much they thrive in the Champions Cup environment as well. Um, so let's move on to Claremont Avern and Ulster. A good news if you are a Dwayne Vermeulen fan, because he's <laughs> going to make his debut finally um, on Saturday at half five when they do take on uh, Claremont. Uh, exciting time, really. Yeah, it really is. We all expected him to turn out a couple of weeks ago against Leinster. And then he you know, arrived in Belfast. Then he had covid um, now he's straight in uh, against uh, against Claremont. He's going to be up against Fritz Lee. He'll be wearing the number eight jersey for Claremont. He's a, an exceptional player. Um, young Marcus Ray joins him in the back row. He's been brilliant coming off the bench. He was pretty good against the Ospreys last week. And, of course, a couple of turnovers against Leinster the, the week before that. Nick Timoney, the man in the moment for Ulster, wearing the seven jersey. So he's in good company. Dwayne Vermeule is in really good company there in the back row for Ulster. And I give them a chance. I, I do give them a chance this um, this. Claremont team, they have their own uh, worries with COVID. There's four players um, out of COVID, one positive, one close contact, and two unnamed players uh, that haven't been vaccinated. So there's a couple of players out for them. Camille Lopez, Matsushima, well, remember the World Cup hero for the play Japan fullback, and uh, Moala, the centre. So, yeah, they have their injury concerns. They have their COVID concerns like everybody else. Um, so I think this is going to be a really good match. Yeah, and when you look at the the starting team for Ulster, even just on paper, when you're going through the names like McCluskey and Hume and Balakoon and Larry and McElroy, it's a real dynamic, exciting team as well. Yeah, it is. They like to throw the ball around, um, keep the ball alive, lots of offloads. Uh, the only concern for me, Marie, is you know that they're missing Ian Henderson, they're missing Marty Moore, who's uh, you know a man who can hold down a scrum, I guess, uh, especially against. Somebody like Slimani, and he's a tough competitor, a tight head prop for for Claremont. So, um, no stock deal either. Jordy Murphy still out. We all know Will Addison had a terrible injury at the start of the season, so they're missing a handful of players as well. But look, give them a good shot. They seem to be playing a good brand of rugby at the minute, and if they can move this Claremont side around, score a few tries. 
you just never know. Yeah, and it'll be interesting as well to see JJ Hanneran start for Claremont as well, just because he's such a history, obviously, with with Munster, um, and to see how he has evolved as a player because we haven't seen too much of him since he left. No, we haven't. He's played a few games now for for Claremont at out half. I know we've seen him in a, a fifteen jersey for Munster over the years as well. Um, but I tell you what, he's got some quality players outside him. Alvarelli Raka, what a player he is. You know, Damien Pinot, uh, unbelievable for France. So I'm sure he'll just praying for some really quick ball that he can get to those guys because they can be devastating in, in, in attack. So, yeah, I'm really excited to see how JJ goes. I'm sure he's relishing this opportunity against uh, Arik's opposition. Um, and hopefully, you know, his time over in France will be the making of him. Yeah, for sure. Um, Munster and Wasps, what can we even say about this game? I think it'll probably be the one that most people will be interested in at the weekend, purely because we're going to see a team that has a lot of new faces, but the narrative around Munster always is when it comes to adversity, they're the ones that are most probably likely to triumph in a situation like that. So there's going to be five debutants um, in that starting team and up to 12 could make their senior debut when you think of the, the bench as well, which is... There's no real getting away from the fact that it is a lot of, of new players that you're expecting to perform. Yeah, right. It's been absolute turmoil for, for Munster. Uh, in the last game they played against the Ospreys, they lost that 18-10. There a number of uh, senior players that started in that match. Um, I expected them to get a win, but it just didn't happen. And then, of course, the South Africa travel restrictions, COVID hits, everything else, you know, and all these young players coming in. But there are there are some some, some experienced guys in there like Kilcoyne, Tag Byrne, Peter O'Mahony, Captain Carberry, Earl, Dale Endy, Farrell, Conway. There's some world class players there and World Cup winners, of course. Um, and you know, I, I expect Munster to, to really put a fight up against this Walsh side. Like us haven't been uh, playing that well. They lost uh, last week to Worcester, 32-31. I know it was a close game. They've lost their last five in all competitions. So if Munster includes something out of a hat um, you know I just have a feeling that as you rightly say if there's a team that their backs are against the wall they seem to come together and grind out a result then it's Munster and uh, yeah I just never know about this game yeah, it's, it's, it is going to definitely be uh, one that's interesting. The worry, though, is that when you look at the bench, and we know now yeah. how important benches are um, in these types of game, with seven of the eight replacements will be making their de- debut. Only Roman Salanoa is the only one who's had first-team experience, and that is a real worry. It is. It is a worry. And, you know, John Ford, Conor Maloney, um, you know, Tony Butler, a few of the lads on the bench there, no experience whatsoever in DRC, never mind Europe, uh, against the wall side that have a, a bit more experience in there. Um, one of the areas of concern is probably the scrum. You know, it's, it's, it's such a tough ask, especially away from home. They're obviously going to Coventry. Um, and Walsh will, 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 of course, fancy this game. Uh, but, the th- you know, the thing is, Walsh could turn up to this with the mentality that because of all these changes, because of the co-pit monster camp, that they're just going to walk this game. And uh, I certainly don't think that's going to be the case. I think it's going to be a really hard-fought match. Um, and, yeah, it's going to be very, very tight. I do expect Walsh to win this one just because of all that's happened uh, and, and the personnel that's in place on the team sheet. But, uh, yeah, as we always say, Marie, don't expect Munster to go down without a fight. Absolutely not. So then we have Connacht and Stade Francais as well. And only in the last hour or so, Connacht finished training and they've made four changes to the team they named earlier. Now, there's been no reason given as of yet for these changes, but Mack Hansen, Kieran Marmion, Leva Fadita and Tom Farrell are all out. 
which when you add Paul Boyle, Bundy, Aki and Alton Delan out as well, that's a lot of, of key names that are not going to be starting. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it just feels that every week there's another surprise that's, that's happening and we all want to see the, the big top name players turning out for their clubs, but nothing will be, uh, be helped if it's COVID-related. Uh, by the signs of it, it, it is. Um, when four lads just drop out last minute, if it was one person, you could maybe put it down to a slight niggle or injury. Um, but yeah, uh, the second row uh, is a huge area. Gavin Thornbury as well, who hasn't played a lot of rugby uh, this season or any rugby this season. Uh, Sammy Arnold's playing really well in the centre. I know we're, we're talking about no Bundyaki, but somebody who's playing outstanding rugby, him and no Mac Hansen is a huge, huge loss because um, anything is possible when that guy is on the pitch. Um, he's been playing such good rugby at the minute. But yeah, uh, Stade Francais, do they travel that well? I've played against them in the past. Um, I think they fancy themselves too much, but they're sitting pretty low down in the top 14. Granted, they had a good win last week, a good home win against La Rochelle. But apart from that, they're hovering around the bottom three in the top 14. So, yeah, I, I still think that uh, this is going to be a tight game, even with all those changes. And, you know, with the sports ground, uh, lots of fans packed in there cheering on the Connacht lads. It's supposed to be wet and windy on Sunday afternoon, right up Connacht Street. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to go for a Connacht win in this one. Okay, well, plenty to look forward to for sure. Anyway, Stephen Ferris, thank you so much for joining us. Game on on UFM with Green Firm. Fuel your day with Green Firm's high protein cooked chicken breast fillet. 100% natural and packed with flavour. Now it's time to turn our attention to racing and there has been quite a lot happening in the last 24 hours. Jockey Robbie Dunn has been banned for 18 months after an independent disciplinary panel ruled he had bullied and harassed fellow rider Bryony Frost. Jane Mangan joins me on the line. Jane, this has been quite a saga for, for quite a while really. Just what's your reaction to the ruling? My reaction isn't one of surprise. I suppose it's one of dismay because it has confirmed what we have heard over the last... This this case has been heard for, for six days, but it has been going on for over a year. Um, we had a leak of information a couple of months back and what was coming out was you know, really disappointing and disturbing. And Mr Dunn, as you say, has been found guilty of bullying... Uh, harassing, deliberately targeting a colleague. Um, and when we say the way room, to any to any normal person, this is a place of work. Um, and that's what's most disappointing. Now, the PJA, the Professional Jockeys Association, have strongly denied um, that it swept the issue under the carpet. It also criticised the BHA's investigation being as being woefully inadequate. But ultimately, this was held, this was all witnesses and evidence was heard by an independent disciplinary panel. The panel chair, Brian Barker QC, uh, said yesterday that it was undeniable or he was unable to accept Mr Dunn's sweep of denials, his criticisms and his reasoning. And he also expressed a real concern um, about what was described as the culture of the way room in Britain. Um, Now, Robbie Dunn has seven days to appeal against the decision uh, we haven't heard any indication before, for or against that. But ultimately, a lot of flack has been thrown in the direction of uh, Bryony Frost. But ultimately, 
she felt that she was being bullied and harassed and this panel has confirmed as such. And just from your own point of view, Jane, the culture of the way room, obviously this does shine a light on some of the, the darker elements of it and it is focused on the UK. What about here? Is it a safe place for female jockeys? Look, that's a fair question. I can only speak from my own personal point of view uh, and I have nothing but positive things to say. Now, I know listeners might be thinking, of course she's going to say that, but honestly, that is my experience and I have a lot of friends in the weigh room as well who I think would confirm that. Now, there is a mantra or there is a a frame of mind that Bryony actually alluded to in her evidence. She said, dad, who was, her dad was a, a Grand National winning rider, Jimmy Frost, he said, he always told me to stay quiet don't start anything, just let it happen and move on. She said, I used to think this, but now uh, with the promise of hurt, which was a threat made towards her, um, she said there's only so much you can take. And let's be honest, a lot of us have been told that over the years. Maybe that is the frame of mind of yesteryear, just let it happen and move on. But that shouldn't have to be the case. Somebody shouldn't be harassed. Somebody should never be bullied and it should never be tolerated. And I suppose this case has shone a light on that. And if it is a culture, if it was a culture, it should never be acceptable. Yep, I have to agree with you. Behaviour that was accepted in the past is no longer acceptable and um, Bryony Frost has been very brave in what she's done as well. Now, Jane, let's move on to the action because there is plenty of it with Cheltenham, the main item on the agenda tomorrow. Yes, for sure. Look, Cheltenham started today. The Irish were out of luck in the cross-country chase today, but they might have more fortune, good fortune tomorrow because we have what looks like to be some very good chances. Blazing Cal for Charles Burns. He was a course winner in November. Donny McInerney was on that on board that occasion. He will be on board again for the Grade 2 Albert Bartlett Novice Hurdle. He's in against Gentile uh, Bello, uh, Bryony legend, but to be honest, Blazing Cal, he's rated 145. He could be a class above these. He's a strong stayer. Uh, this is a three-mile test and uh, he's proven his liking for the course. And then, of course, the international hurdle. This is a little bit interesting from the perspective of Heaven Help Us was a very, very good winner of the Carl Cup. She goes back for Paul Hennessy and Danny Mullins is on board. She's a 150 rated mare. I think she's value in that race against the likes of Sue Royale, Song for Someone and Bally Adam. Remember that horse mm-hmm. last year? He won a Royal Bond. He was, what was he, fourth in Aintree, second to Appreciated in the Supreme. He took to chasing this year fed at the first on chase debut didn't jump adequately at Navin last time so he reverts back to hurdles I think he's interesting Henry de Bromhead has obviously tried chasing with him and hasn't worked and with Rachel Blackmore aboard I think he has a good chance in the international hurdle tomorrow and then Fairy House that's where you will be and we're going to see a return of Paul Townen as well yeah for sure it's I suppose a long awaited return Paul has some really good horses to look forward to over the Christmas period so he will be itching to get back and he's getting back on some very good horses I think the beginners chases are the, probably the most interesting uh, we open the card at 11.30 and you have Blue Lord Cade Boy El Barra fantastic Alan all in there I think uh, Blue Lord was a little bit disappointing over hurdles last year let, let's see what he can do over fences and his mount in the second beginner's chase the two mile five is Statler Statler would have been a lot of people's fancy for the Albert Bartlett last year he placed and he came back at Punchestown and he finished third in a grade one as well he looks like a real stair and he looks like he'll be a, a dab hand over fences Willie Mullins also has Fighter Allen there uh, Gordon Elliott has Column of Fire Gars Dussault and Glenn Lowe in there 
So the beginner's chases are interesting at what will probably be an absolutely freezing fairy house. <laughs> I've no sympathy for you, Jane. I'm back on the flat, Aidan O'Brien has three runners in Hong Kong on Sunday morning Irish time. Does he ever take a break? Uh, honestly, I uh, I don't know. And 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 with him was is his men or was his master uh, the man he learned from Jim Bulger has a runner out there as well, Max Swinney in the Hong Kong Cup. Look, Mother Earth has been has had a busy schedule all year. She began the very start of the season by winning the Guineas, and she's running in the Hong Kong Mile. She's going to be up against it against the local horse Golden Sixty, but she might be the best chance of the trio from Bally Doyle. Mogul is in the vase. He's going back to defend his crown in the vase. Pile driver in there for the UK as well and Bolshoi Ballet runs in the Hong Kong Cup uh, along with Max Winnie. Dubai Honour from William Haggis's yard. There's a lot happening in, happening in Hong Kong. It's worth absolutely millions in prize money but this is national hunt season. It is cold, it is wet, it is Cheltenham. <laughs> so Jane, give us one tip for the weekend then before we finish up. I, I like, I think heaven help us is double figure odds for the international hurdle and she really shouldn't be. Okay, Jane Mangan as always, thank you so much. Now it's time to turn our attention to athletics and I'm delighted to say that Ian O'Riordan is with me on the line to preview the European Cross Championships in the National Sports Campus this weekend. Ian, it's a day I think that sports fans, athletics fans, they just love and relish. It is, it's almost like athletics in its purest form. Absolutely, Mary, yeah. And obviously a year later than originally planned given this is supposed to be happening in December 2020, um, COVID-19 taking care of that and few doubts even over the last week or two whether all the teams would make it in but no, the stage is, the stage is set now perfectly. I think it's 38 countries over 600 runners across the seven races as you say out in the purpose-built course at Abbottstown so yeah, the stage is perfectly set and I think if anything the year, the year delay has possibly worked to advantage when it comes to the Irish team. It's more or less a full-strand Irish team across the seven races um, a few absentees like Sean Tobin at the senior men's race who would have been who would have maybe one of our lead runners but I think we've seen a few athletes progress over the last year the likes of the likes of Michelle Finn in the senior women the likes of Hiko Tonosa now in the senior men so I certainly think the year delay won't have done the medal chances any harm anyway Yeah well that's a, a, a huge positive and look just for the event itself I, I guess we really do need to start with Inge Britson Jacob, in, in, Jacob Inge Britson the fact that he is going to be there and look you know even if you're the casual fan you want to you want the star power you want the big name and you have it with him yeah, Jacob Inger-Brixen, obviously Norway's Olympic 1500 metre champion, who's just turned 21, which is absolutely ridiculous when you consider <laughs> what he's done over the course of his career. Well, he's 21 in September, I think. So, yeah, he's getting a bit old at the stage. But, um, yeah, I mean, the best runner in the world. And, I mean, I've no no doubt in saying that. I mean, he won the Olympic title and Olympic record, European record, 328. He ran a, a 12.48 for 5,000 metres this year. In fact, he's only the second man in history to have run a sub-330, a sub-330, Seven thirty for three thousand meters, and then a sub twelve fifty for for five thousand meters. And the only other man to do that was Daniel Coleman from Kenya um, twenty odd years ago. And I think anybody who remembers Daniel Coleman will know he was a total freak. And now we have Inge Britson in that footsteps. So yeah, I mean he's he's bypassed the under twenty three race to go straight into the senior race. But then this is just a measure of his, of his, of his I suppose his ambition and, and his confidence. And I've no doubt unless he runs the wrong way or sent the wrong way or something. He, he will win um, that, that race. The, the Irish senior men, they don't have a great record in this race. I mean, despite our good tradition in men's distance running, we haven't, we've only actually medaled once in the senior men. That was in 2001 when they won bronze medals. Sorry, 2000 when they won bronze medals um, 
in the team race. So I don't think that's going to change on Sunday. So we're looking at probably the underage races and then, of course, senior women, which is which will hinge more or less on how well Fanula McCormick recovers from running the Valencia Marathon just last Sunday in a new lifetime best of, what was it, 323 58. Now, if I'd run a 223 uh, marathon last Sunday, I know what I'd be doing this weekend <laughs> is putting my legs up in front of the fire and not even thinking about running cross country. But McCormick is a, a different sort of uh, attitude when it comes to these things, and she's she, she's relishing the chance to run. Um, I mean, just just it's, it's worth just taking a step back here and considering this is her this is her 17th appearance in in this race over 20 years when she first ran as a junior. In twenty in two thousand one, that's more than any other woman in, in, in history. She's she's won the race twice, obviously. She's finished fourth four times, and Ireland have won medals. I think it's four of the last eight years, and she was the first. She was the leading scorer every time. I mean, it's an incredible consistency, and I think if I was any other sport, McCorm would be hailed as a, as one of these one of these great. But it's just it's just a measure of her own modesty, and she's as you know, like she just doesn't yeah. she doesn't doesn't crave the spotlight. She never goes looking for recognition, sporting awards, or any of that kind of stuff. She just goes out there and does her business. And um, I don't think she'd be too far off. I mean, she, if anyone has these massive, incredible powers of recovery, I think it will be Fanula. And I mentioned Michelle Finn in that mix there, and then Ava Richardson is back from from two years ago when they won when they won silver medals. In, in Lisbon, so they won't be too far off, but it really will. It really will hinge on how well Fanula recovers in, in what is six, seven days, essentially. Yeah, as you said, she just she just stays under the ra- the radar so so much. It would be lovely to have to have to see her have that moment in the sun in Dublin, actually. But sure, we'll see what happens. Now we know that the underage races they look like where we're going to potentially shine um, this weekend. So who should we be looking out for? Yeah, there's a couple of very exciting athletes to look out for here. And I mean, beginning with the under-23 division, which I think that's been there now since about 2007. And that was brought in to obviously bridge the gap between between junior and senior. We've had a great bit of success in this event, including two years ago when the women won when the women won silver medals. And you're looking this, this weekend again, on Sunday again, at Sarah Healy from UCD. Again, just, just, turned, just turned 21. And she just turned 20, so she's just outside of the under-20 race and looked very good in finishing seconds in the national championships. There's a few other good runners in that, in that race, like Danielle Donegan, also of UCD, Lauren Tinkler, who's a fast-improving runner from DCH, uh, Jody McCann from DCH as well. So I think, I think the under-23 women, if they all run to their potential, I think have a great chance of winning medals, including a potential individual medal for Sarah Healy. Then the under-23 men, looking at Darren Michaelini of UCD who finished a close second to, to Hiko in the National Cross Country he's just turned 21 so he's still kind of young for that age group you've got Michael Parr in there back back from the US um, a few other good runners too like like uh, the, his, his UCD teammate um, um, sorry Killeen and Kilrehel as well of Moy Valley so these are the kind of guys who I think will definitely be in the mix in the under 23 race but I hope I'm not putting too much pressure on, on a young 16-year-old Nicholas Griggs, who's out of runs from Mid Ulster, out of Tyrone. This is this is, this was the kid, and I say and I say the word not in a nice way. He was a kid who won the European under 20 3,000 meters this 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 summer against runners who were three or four years older. He's one of these super talents who just comes out of the proverbial nowhere. Um, again, ran away with the national cross country. He'll be running against guys again two or three years older than him on Sunday but he just seems to have this completely fierce attitude towards racing he just loves to he loves to race and he loves to win and I think if he if he if he runs to form on, on Sunday then we could see him um, um, possibly getting the day off to a, a glorious start by, by winning a gold medal
Sounds great. And it will be live on RT television as well. Ina Reardon, thank you so much for that preview. Now, as if it wasn't busy enough, we have the small matter of Katie Taylor been in the ring this weekend as well. And Gavin Casey of the 42 joins us from Liverpool. Gavin, how are you? And uh, how's things shaping up over there? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, Marie, things are shaping up pretty nicely. The Weights are made, most of the drama bubbling beneath the surface seems to have been settled. There have been a few problems behind the scenes during the week with Sharapova. She was dissatisfied with her hotel, with the lack of a gym in her hotel due to COVID restrictions over here. A few other things, and you'd never be able to tell because she's walking around all bubbly and smiles. Uh, but there's always something going on. <laughs> it seems like uh, everything has been settled. and. Yeah, the fight is on, which is the most important thing. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and carrying a football I saw a little bit earlier on as well, which was interesting. Uh, what, what, why, why did she have the football? Was it because she's Liverpool? <laughs> to be honest, I don't know. And I actually asked one of Taylor's management team, like, do you know the backstory there? <laughs> uh, I was told, no idea. <laughs> so it, right. it may have just been a nice gesture. She has spoken in the past, uh, including as recently as yesterday at the press conference, of how... Taylor has always been her idol, her boxing idol, and maybe just the fact that Taylor is a former international footballer herself, just a kind gesture. I'd say I'd be more inclined to think it's mind games a little bit. Like there have been a couple of occasions during the week where, um, for example, at the media workout on Wednesday, Taylor was just about to do an interview with the Zone, and Sharapova had watched Taylor's workout from ringside, which is unusual. Like kind of like stalking her in a way, like a, like a hawk, and then approached Taylor out of nowhere just as she was about to begin this interview. And like there was a bit of a moment of tension. A hush fell upon the room. Nobody really intervened, and you're kind of like, "What's going on?" Now she only went up to say hello, and like it was a very friendly exchange. Right. But Taylor said afterwards she didn't even recognise who Sharapova was. Uh, so it was like, it was awkward. And she's been kind of doing a few things like that during the week. Whereas lurking, like 10 lurking. days ago when we were... Spe- yeah, yeah. Whereas last week when we were speaking to her, um, like I did a piece with her before I came over to Liverpool and she was a little bit more abrasive verbally. And uh, as much as she is a fan of Taylor, there was. She believes she's on the slide. She believes that she's starting to take easier fights, all of these sorts of things that she believes play, uh, play into her favour. And what's your thoughts on it? So she's Sharapova is 27. She's made a point of, of saying how much younger she is than Katie as well. Um, Katie's saying that she's keeping her focus and her eye on exactly what she has to do this weekend, but is at the same time uh, mentioning that she will have tougher tests to come over the coming months. Is it going to be straightforward for Katie Taylor? On paper, it should be. Uh, I suppose, unfortunately, like the ring isn't made of paper. And we saw as recently as two weeks ago an example of where we would have believed uh, George Cambosis from Australia was just a good fighter. He shocked the world in beating a great fighter in Teofimo Lopez and flipped the script. And look, it is the boxing ring is kind of like the refuge for, for the unexpected in sport quite often. I, I do think Taylor, like all of the tangible evidence we have of... Taylor's career so far and what we've seen of Sharapova just on YouTube and so on would suggest that Taylor should box the brakes off her. But look, Taylor's 35 years old. She's had a long run of it. Her last two performances haven't been especially vintage. There's an argument to be made that she is physically just about on the slide. And look, if Sharapova has put in a full training camp, a really professional training camp, over 20 minutes, can she turn it into a kind of a, a bit of a war and just... I'll almost take the boxing quality out of it and, and look to bully Taylor around the place a little bit. She might try to. I don't I don't think it'll be enough to answer your question, but it may be closer than we anticipate or that than Taylor's team anticipated when they accepted the fight because these things just happen. 
Okay, there'll be a big Irish contingent there which will help because Katie isn't the only one from Ireland fighting this weekend. Yeah, Kevin Jericho from Belfast has actually brought over 150 fans, <laughs> which for a guy who's had nine professional fights is some going. I mean, we're expecting about six, 7,000 people in the arena and Kevin is on at 6 o'clock tomorrow evening, so for anybody listening who will be watching on the zone, make sure you uh, tune in early to watch him. He's 9-0, six knockouts, one of the brightest professional prospects in Irish boxing, and he just recently signed with Eddie Hearn after parting ways with Frank Warren. He's got a, a decent test ahead of him tomorrow, but it's more so about introducing himself to a new audience and, and hopefully as well to some of the more uh, casual boxing observers back home who, who aren't familiar with his story. Uh, give him a Google, he's worth a look and he's going to be a lot of fun over the next few years. Will do. Gav, thank you as always and we will catch up with you soon. That is all we have time for this evening. Thank you to John Farrell who produced Blonded Tracy with The Chart Show is up next. With Green Farm, have your dinner ready in a flash with Green Farm's high-protein cooked chicken breast fillet. Available in selected stores nationwide. Two.